your summer last year was, I'm sure I don't need to remind you, you know, yeah. hot, dry, record-breaking, months without rain. Instead of rain falling, you had ash falling. This is the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Find us over at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. I'm a country boy with the soft side. My heart wanders up north to the hillside. Now I've never met anyone quite as beautiful as you. I'm your host, Rudy Getzik. I'm here to inspire you to get out on the trail. You putting in two-mile hikes, five-mile hikes? Are you still on the couch? Come on, let's go on a backpacking trip. I'm going to introduce you to some folks that have done that and a whole lot more. All right, next on the Cascade Hiker Podcast, what's your name and where are you from? I am Heather Hansen, and I'm from Boulder, Colorado. All right, well, we're chatting today because uh, I, well, I, I actually didn't quite finish the book, but I've been reading uh, Wildfire on the front lines with Station 8. Can you kind of give a little overview of what this book's about? Absolutely. So in the book, I take a look at wildfire in the U.S., um, past, present, and what our future might look like. And I do that by um, kind of exploring the experiences of the crew that we have in Boulder. They're the only municipal um, wildlife, uh, wildfire rather, crew um, in the country full-time dedicated to um, fire suppression in um, the high season and fire mitigation in the off season. So we have a, a unique crew and it was um, about 18 months, two years or so that I spent kind of shadowing them and embedded with them. And they were immensely helpful in, in helping me understand and hopefully readers now of the book understand kind of where, where we are and how we got here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if anybody wants to know anything about wildfires, this is where to go here. I tell you, I've, I've been just it's why honestly it's why it's been taking me a little bit longer to read because uh you know you do give off so many numbers and stuff before we get into all that um can you describe what station eight is like like what you know kind of the people the um, atmosphere there yeah so it's um nine guys and it is all men and um that is a chief and an eight member crew and they now have a, a fairly new um, fire station that's um, also uh, affiliated with a training center next door, and it's out by the reservoir in Boulder. Um, and it's just a couple years, I guess two and a half years or so, they've been in that location. And before that, they um, they were a bit wayward. They had um, um, they were spread out all over town with tools, some places, people, other places. Um, so it's it's a relief for them to be all in one one place with all their their hand tools and their trucks and their uh, workout equipment, which is a key part of um, being a wildland firefighter. And um, they also do a ton of training, um, particularly in the off season for uh, local um, firefighters, even structural firefighters who um, kind of straddle the border between that and wildlands in Colorado. Uh, but they do training for people really all over the state will come. Um, so fairly new digs they have now and um it's a it's a lovely it's a lovely station actually and from from there you can see probably five miles of a front range of colorado so whenever there's a, a lightning strike and a puff of smoke they're among the first to see it from from their vantage point oh that's perfect so it's almost a little lookout there <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. All right on. Well, uh, you know, let's dive into the fires. So I think a lot of people probably understand the basics of uh, of the fires, but it is cool how you get into detail in the book. And, uh, you know, we're talking about ignitions and fuels and climate and how do those play a role into, uh, you know, these fires starting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are um, there are basics of, of wildland fire, which I learned throughout my time with the crew, but I also spent some time early on um, training to become a wildland firefighter. So I went out to Western Colorado and I did all the um, classroom study that you do, took, took all the written tests and um, did what's called a work capacity test as well, which is um, covering three miles in 45 minutes with a 45 pound weight vest on, <laughs> which um, is way harder um, than I thought it sounded. I'm not particularly wimpy. I've probably like a lot of your listeners, um, hiked a lot of peaks, a lot of 14ers in Colorado, and I've run some marathons. And I have to tell you, the physical requirements of being a wildland firefighter are just a lot, a lot different. I left that uh, weekend covered with, with blisters on on my feet, and that's a test that they <laughs> have to take every year to stay certified. Wow. So I learned some some basics then and, and along the way. Um, but, yeah, all of those pieces are immensely important. Um, not just for their kind of day-to-day in fire suppression um, and mitigation, but it, it, it's important for them to know all those factors and having kind of a, a longer-range idea of, of what has to happen um, with wildlands and with the wildland-urban interface, which is kind of that space in between um, that straddles where houses are and, and where wildlands are. Um, that's that's changing a lot, and they need to understand all the factors that feed into you know what's happening with fires in order to to know how to deal with them and to keep themselves safe. Yeah, you kind of highlighted too uh, some of the seasoned veteran uh, firefighters. Uh, they almost kind of know when a fire might break out just based on these uh, these things. Yeah, they um, they sniff it out almost like a. <laughs> like a hound dog or something, you know, we can, and some of the patrols that I took with them, it could be blazingly hot and they just drive with the windows down, just smelling the air and, and looking, they really, um, seem to have a, a sixth sense for, um, and I, and I saw it time and again where they were just right, you know, they would wake up and say, today something's going to happen. And, you know, they, they go on patrol and they find something. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you really did a good job of painting the characters. Uh, I mean, I, I call them characters, but they're, they're real folks. And um, man, it's almost uh, almost like you embedded the reader in with them. And I really like that about the book. Um, well, you know, let's dive into the numbers a little bit, not not the numbers themselves, um, but just the fact that, man, you, you got a ton of numbers, w- which is great because it gives a perspective of all the different years, different sizes, deaths and houses lost, um, you know, it really ties the information that you were talking about uh, just based on, you, you know, you give the reader some information, but then you also give them the, the, the numbers and it kind of just ties it all together. Uh, it must've taken a while to get all this together. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you um, noticing that. And I'm an obsessive researcher. I kind of don't know when to stop. I, I feel like <laughs> I'm even now still in talking about the book, still researching, you know, I still, hang on to a lot of studies and a lot of um, 
national fire activity synopsis, you know, is one of the things open on my desktop here, you know, looking at trying to compare year to year. And when you want to say, which I understand is true now that fires are getting bigger, um, costlier, deadlier, um, and more destructive, that the numbers back that up. So that's why I spend time in the book um, backing that all up. It, it seemed important to me. Yeah, and with the uh, you know the different sizes and deaths and, and houses lost, uh, something you also talk about in the book. Uh, do all fires need to be put out? All fires do not need to be put out. Um, one thing when we talk about changing the way that we live with wildfire, which is um, one of the big takeaways I hope that that people get from the book. I certainly got it in the the time that I was reporting the book is that we need to change um, how we think about fire. And part of that is changing how um, comfortable we are with fire on the landscape. And there are places in which wildfires can't be actively managed necessarily. You know, if you look at places where the wildland urban interface is so crammed, like Southern California, for instance, or, you know, right in the the front lines in Boulder, you can't let a fire do what a fire might have done historically on the landscape. You have to suppress it. It's what's, it's what's safe. You know, it's keeping people safe, keeping property safe. Um, but there are a lot of instances even now where fire may be able to be more actively managed in certain areas. And it, it's not being because of our kind of historic distaste for fire. So there are some places where they're doing some experimentation with that, particularly um, a couple of national forests in California. And it takes a lot of um, observation of the landscape, knowing what is where and what can be tolerated where and what you need to do and how you need to do it when a, when a spark flares, whether it's human cause, mostly, you know, it's not in the backcountry, um, but Yes, in answer to your question, not not all fires need to be put out, and we need to um, a big part of becoming more comfortable with fire on the landscape is is letting the people who know how to do it um, more actively manage even um, wildfires that start other than you know prescribed burns, which is something I talk a lot about in the book as well. All right, a quick little break here to. Uh show some support with these sponsors this is waymark gear co waymark gear company waymarkgearco.com i want you to go over there and check out all the little ways that you can edit your pack you know basically um you know, spark it with some colors here and there and i'm telling you i don't know the exact number but there's got to be at least 20 or, or more ways that you can change a color on this pack it's so cool. And, and you can also change the, the um, pockets around. You can make one long pocket on the side for, like, your longer items. Um, you could add straps if you wanted to, uh, though, of course, that adds weight or whatever. Uh, it really, you can just build your own pack based on these um, on, on what he's got set up. That's Mark Benson over there at Waymark Gear Company. And uh, I'm on the website right now just kind of messing around. I think you guys should go check that out. I wanted to kind of throw out some... Some of the prices, I mean, he's got 38 to 40 liter, 42 liter packs on there for 195 is where they start. And, uh, you know, 50 liter pack starts at 225. Please go over there and at least just check it out. And, uh, hey, tell them the Cascade Hiker Podcast sent you. Thanks. 
and you also talk about uh, kind of learning about fires, not necessarily in the moment, like like checking out fires in the lab. Um, can you talk about that a little bit too? Because I thought that was pretty very interesting. In terms of the time that I spent in uh, Montana. Yes. Yes. At the fire. Yeah. So there is a, a fire sciences lab in Missoula that's been around for their past their fiftieth anniversary and. Since then, they've been, there are several other around the country, but the Missoula is the one that I visited. And people study every aspect of fire there. You know, there are people who um, have been, a lot of them have been wildland firefighters and also spend time um, either in the off season or um, just all year round. You know, they will go out on fires as well. They're certified wildland firefighters, but they do research as well. You know, if it's research on fire retardant, fire shelters, you know, is, is a big part of what I talk about in the book, but also um, forestry. You know, there are foresters there who look at um, both in the lab sense and um, in the field um, what, what responds to what and what way, you know, in terms of vegetation or even uh, man-made structures. And they're able to learn more about what needs to happen in terms of fire management or um, fireproofing to the extent that you can your land or your house. So there's a lot of, over the years, there have been some wacky things that have come out of the fire sciences lab, <laughs> um, you know, water bombs and things like that. They thought it would be good to drop like huge kegs basically of water from a plane and realize that that was a pretty dangerous idea over time. But a lot of others, um, you know, that are, are things that we do today, you know, they're evolving today in terms of um, being able to, to forecast um, what a fire will look like in the next 12 hours, 24 hours. So what, the, what they do there is really, really cutting edge and really important. Yeah, I thought it was great that you that you went up there and did that and included in the book because uh, that was some of the stuff that I, I had no idea about. I mean, besides all the other stuff I learned from the book, I mean, that was one of them that really stood out. Um, and you also cover like getting back to actually fighting the fires. Um, you have a really cool section, uh, and you kind of cover some job hazards that aren't fire related. I thought that was a, a neat thing to add in there too. It was a, it was a shorter section, uh, but, uh, you kind of talk about some, some of the different variables that, uh, that firefighters might come along, you know, in these odd, odd places, right? Yeah. I think we don't think a whole lot about, um, what the rest of the environment that um, these men and, and women are going into um, when they are dispatched on a fire. You know, they may, in Boulder, they, you know, have had experiences from fighting fire from the Alaskan tundra to the Everglades in Florida. So they, they work under a lot of um, tough conditions, you know, temperature extremes, altitude, remoteness. Um, and then there are kind of the, the everyday hazards that, you know, we all know from spending time in the backcountry, um, poison ivy, snakes, um, grizzly bears. And you, you might remember one anecdote in the book is one of the Boulder crew who used to fight a lot of fire in Southern California. Um, he was stung by a scorpion. <laughs> so yeah. there's just a lot. I don't mean to laugh, but it's it's so alarming to me that. Um, yeah, I just, like you, had never thought a whole lot about every other hazard that kind of goes with the job. 
Yeah, that's exactly why I asked the question was the Scorpions part. And I'm glad you brought it up because, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, was just blown away by that because it's like, whoa, you know, you just don't think that that's going to come up on a report somewhere. Right. Yeah. And it, it may or may not have, you know, so many um, injuries and things like that aren't reported, even aren't recorded. You know, most of them are passed on just anecdotally because at least the way the some of the guys on the Boulder crew described it to me. You know, if you were having a, if you twisted your ankle or something and you should probably sit out for half a day, day, whatever, maybe even go home, you, you don't because you know that the rest of this crew is relying on you to do what you have been um, asked to do in that place. So they really, they push through an awful lot um, physically, um, but mentally as well. And that's, that's a big part of the job that I um, learned a lot about over my time with them. Yeah, well, that was actually what I was just going to bring up. Um, you had a really, really uh, standout line, that, and you said, uh, when firefighters leave fires, the fires don't leave them. And maybe you can go into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's been described to me as a, as a kind of post-traumatic uh, stress um, response that some of them will have. You know, not every day is a near-death experience. You know, some days can be very uh, mundane for them. Um, but some of the things that we would think are kind of unbelievable also get to be kind of ordinary for them. You know, there are, and there are lots of anecdotes about this in the book, um, with specifically with members of the Boulder crew, where they do, you know, occasionally have near-death experiences and they, you know, ask themselves, why am I doing this? You know, I'll, I'll never go back. And then they go back because there are a lot of things that they love about the job. And there are a lot of ways that they're particularly well suited to do that job. Um, but there's a lot of, and I think this goes for other uh, first responders as well. You know, the helpers don't often get help. So they might be going over something um, time and again that they experienced on a fire that they might not necessarily ask for, for help about. And that's something that um, during my time with the Boulder crew, they started to talk a lot more about the, the need for um, not just locally, but nationally resources that people can, you know, process some of the experiences that they have. You know, it's also, um, demanding mentally in terms of the amount of time, you know, that they spend away from home and it challenges um, relationships in that way as well. And I think it pushes some people who, um, you know, maybe need to take a break in, in ways that um, we wouldn't anticipate, you know, sometimes to the brink. So it's um, mental health is a, a huge Mental fortitude and mental health are, are big parts of that job. Like I think they are for a lot of uh, first responders. Oh, absolutely. Um, I wanted to, to uh, read a quote here that you had in the book, and, and maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, the surroundings of that. Uh, Dave Zader said, it's kind of weird. If you have a fire that burns down a lot of houses, they have parades for you. But if you do a really good job and stop the fire, nothing happens and nobody remembers it. Yeah. So it was tough for me to get my head around that at first, and it's something that I revisited um, many times um, with crew members there and you know, with pe other firefighters 
um, in the West. That one good example is a, a fire that we had in uh, Boulder in 2012 called the Flagstaff Fire. And at the time that sparked, um, there were other fires going on on the Front Range of Colorado. So up north near Fort Collins, um, we had the High Park Fire. Um, down south near Colorado Springs, and we had the Waldo Canyon Fire, both big, fast-moving, dangerous, deadly fires. And there are a number of resources that are allocated to blazes like that that um, are increased in severity. You know, they become federal fires, type one or type two, and different resources are available, um, particularly aviation resources, which are really um, game-changing resources in a large fire. So at the time the 2012 Flagstaff fires sparked in Boulder, we had all of these resources nearby. So um, I think one lesser known fact about fires is if a new one sparks like that, uh, resources can be diverted um, right away to tamp that down so that we're not dealing with three large blazes on the front range instead of two, you know, that's plenty. So that is what a lot of firefighters in the Boulder area will say was one of the best saves of their career, you know, keeping it to 200, between 200 and 300 acres, I think it was, you know, right in the postcard backdrop of Boulder. It could have easily been one that galloped out over the plains, you know, like it did in um, Waldo Canyon and that just destroyed several hundred houses that year outside of Colorado Springs. So there were, you know, people that recognized that and there were, you know, there was some backslapping and thank yous. But if you compare it to the 2010 um, fire that we had outside Boulder, where uh, many more or many houses were destroyed. And it was, you know, a fast moving blaze that they couldn't deploy um, aircraft on immediately because the conditions wouldn't allow it. Then even though it burned down dozens of houses, there were signs and there were parades and there were, you know, thank yous, um, which there, there should be. Um, I'm, I'm not saying there shouldn't be, but um, it is curious that there is less recognition, maybe simply because people don't know as much about those fires, but the, the recognition is off the charts. Um, fires that they, they don't necessarily catch right away versus um, ones that they do. So we should maybe pay attention and, you know, be able to congratulate them for those um, fires that could have been but, but weren't. Yeah, and they, and they probably went into those fires with the same severity. I mean, you know, that's, that, I think that's the point, too, is, you know, they, it's not like they entered this smaller fires that they put out uh, with less uh, preparedness. Exactly. Yeah, they imagine every one could be a, a big one. You know, they um, look at, you know, what is happening and uh, the, the fire weather and the topography and the fuels available they calculate all of these factors when they um, call for some type of response to it. They do, they're very careful about that, but they definitely approach every blaze as this is something we need to deal with uh, immediately. It could be the one that gets away. Yeah, and I uh, really liked your section uh, where you kind of followed Brian Oliver um, at the, I believe it was Hale Valley Ranch. 
And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was, uh, he was in charge of the PPE. And uh, can you kind of talk about the importance of, of that type of role? And, I, and I, I just want to say that I really like the way that you brought PPE into the story uh, by using this example. Yeah, so when you're head of safety on a, um, even on a prescribed fire, um, prescribed fires or planned fires uh, are very similar to the way that wildfires are, are managed um, because they, you know, are, that's by nature what they are, even if they are really well planned and really well managed. They have to have all of the same positions that they have on an unplanned fire so that they can manage it in a similar way if something changes and it's you know goes beyond its its perimeter um which which it does upon occasion so when you're head of safety it's um what brian referred to as glove copping you know making sure that everybody um has the correct gear on um hard hats and nomex which is the the name for the um yellow shirts and scratchy green pants that you know you'll see um that'll be very familiar to people, you know, from photos of wildland firefighters. And it, all of that is extremely important, you know, to keeping them, to keeping them safe, even on a, a prescribed burn. Yeah. Um, I reached out to some, I always, uh, post my interviews in my Facebook group, uh, for my podcast and Craig McDonald asked, uh, that kind of has something to do with this section. Where do you see improvements in wildland firefighter safety? In the time that I, spent with them or kind of historically historically i would say uh i think there have been a lot of a lot of changes some of the um fatality fires for example that we look at in um training to become a wildland firefighter looking at fatality fires is a really important part of that training to look at what what went wrong and what has changed as a result of that you know so we look at a fire like the 94 fire in uh, Western Colorado that killed uh, 15 um, firefighters. Um, Things change after a fire like that, ideally. And they did in that case. Um, Communications are a lot better than they used to be. They're certainly not flawless, but um, people have a lot better idea of of who is where and how they're going to get information um, when they need it. So, over time, a lot has changed, um, particularly in terms of technology. Um, what I talk about in the book, the, the MMA plane that flies over fires uh, throughout the West, really, and is able to describe to you know people on the ground its movement and are able to map it um, from there. They're able to give a lot of, of information that it sometimes took days for fire managers on the ground to get. So technology is a big thing that's changed and is, and is still evolving. But you even look at um, the fire shelter, for instance, and the improvements that they're trying to make with that, you know, with, with keeping it as light as it can be and as durable as it can be, um, because it swings from the back of uh, every wildland firefighter's backpack, sometimes for years, and has to be um, foolproof if and when they need it, you know, making sure something like that is as light and as durable and as effective as it can be um, when you look at you know, conditions that are getting more and more extreme over time. So a lot of 
there have been a lot of technological uh, and a lot of safety improvements, um, particularly in terms of, of communication. Right on. Uh, Craig McDonald had another question uh, that I thought uh, was, was pretty good. What, what are your thoughts on fuel reduction in the forests? What examples might you have on projects where the fuel reduction had a positive impact and which might have had a negative impact? Yeah, so there are many examples um, that I can point to in the, both in, in my research and in conversations with people. Um, fuel reduction is a really important part of us actively taking ownership of our public land in terms of, of wildfire. Um, prescribed burning and thinning together in partnership are the, the single most effective way to affect fire behavior. Um, before a fire happens. So it, on the national scale, there are some 84 million acres of national forest that it's estimated are kind of high priority to be treated for wildfires. And that's an extraordinary amount when you, you think the Forest Service treats uh, in a good year, maybe 5 million acres of that. And you know, by the time they're done with all of it, they kind of have to start over again. So fuel treatments are hugely important and stepping up our game in terms of doing them is really important. Um, but it's not as simple as kind of wielding a bigger chainsaw. You know, we've, we've realized over time that the, the plan has to match the environment. So you, you have to look closely um, in places like Boulder, for instance, which I have the, the most experience with. You have to look at a chunk of land, historically, what has the fire regime been there? What does the vegetation look like now? What are the resources that are at risk? You know, do you have, is it part of a watershed? Do you have homes nearby? Um, you have to look at all of that, take all of that into account and decide, you know, how you want to treat that. But in a, in a broad statement, I would say thinning and burning are the single most effective um, things that you can do. And a really good example of that, um, which kind of vindicated fire managers over time, is the Rim Fire in uh, California in 2013. It started in Stanislaus National Forest and it burned east into Yosemite. And it, I think, still is considered the biggest um, fire in the Sierra Nevada, in, at least in recorded history. And they uh, released a report recently, um, I wish I could remember exactly which institution it was, but you could definitely find it if you, if you looked online. Um, they looked at treatment areas over time and the fire behavior and perimeter. And anecdotally, you know, in the time that I spent in Yosemite with the um, fire and aviation there, um, her name is Kelly Martin, um, she felt like those fuel treatments must have had an impact, but you can't say definitively. So this group looked at each treatment area, some 20 something of them, and realized that yes, where fuels had been treated, thinned helped, but thinned and burned helped most, that even with the extreme fire behavior that they experienced in the rim fire, that when the fire reached those treatment areas, it um, laid down as firefighters say and and fire on the ground generally is fire they can 
they can fight. So there are there are a lot over, I would say, since the beginning of the, the mega fire, the so-called mega fire era, there are a lot of examples of, of big fires where it worked. Um, and there are also, to answer the second part of Craig's question, there are examples where it just doesn't work. And that um, sometimes requires looking closely at, at why it might have not have worked. You know, it were, was there ground vegetation that grew up in between the time it had been treated and the, the time of the fire? Did that ground vegetation that was allowed to grow actually end up acting as a ladder that helped the fire climb up into the trees? It, was there such a strong wind during the fire where, you know, air resources not able to be called? There are a lot of factors. And I look at kind of two case studies kind of in the book in, in the Boulder area where people try to compare apples to apples, but it's mm -hmm. apples to oranges generally when you look at fires. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but you have to look carefully at why it works and then why it, why it doesn't. So it's not... It's not a panacea. Sometimes there's nothing that can be done in extreme fire behavior, but there are many more examples of ways that thinning and burning um, mitigated very extreme, extreme fire behavior. Yeah, and uh, I, Craig did mention he's very excited to read your book, and I, I would I'd say as as you're talking and answering these questions, I can. I can hear your book coming out. I mean, it's so good. Uh, you know, after reading it and then hearing you talk and, and just putting the two together are, are really fun. All right, a quick break here to spotlight uh, Lux Tents. That's uh, luxhikinggear.com, L-U-X-E-hiking-gear.com. Uh, we're going to talk about the their, uh, cheapest tent that you can pick up. I mean, in price, not quality, of course. Um, that's the Mini Peak Pyramid two-person backpacking tent. And uh, this is $115. Go to their site and check it out. Uh, like you say, luxe-hiking-gear.com. There's a link in the show notes, of course. Um, you know, right now I'm on the website kind of checking it out. And uh, this is a three-season, uh, you know, 2.2-pound two-person tent. You know, there's no floor it's the uh, um, pyramid style that Lux Hiking Gear does. And anyway, you know, if you really want to go cheap, cheap and lightweight, you know, check this out. I mean, this is kind of like I've been saying, uh, just the better way to go because it's a more personal relationship with the brand. Um, to local to me, company, uh, cottage company here, and Jake's a friend of mine. And he's sponsoring the show. So I want you guys to at least go check it out. L-U-X-E-Hiking-Gear.com. Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, yeah. before we get going, um, can you talk a little bit about the physically demanding, you know, keeping keeping in shape? You, you mentioned it before. And uh, um, can you talk about what, what the firefighters have to go through to, to kind of keep in shape? Yeah, so I learned from a, an exercise physiologist in um, Missoula, because they also study the physiology of, of um, the demands of firefighting there. I learned that they're elite athletes. They're among the top 5% of the most fit people in the world, so so I'm told. And I saw that in the, in the workouts that I took part in a few times um, with the Boulder crew, and 
you know, again, in Boulder, we're, you know, kind of have a, or have a reputation for not being, you know, total couch potatoes, but they are um, impressive. And they, as much as they work out, they also eat, you know, a phrase, <laughs> a phrase that I heard uh, more than once in my time doing the recording for this book was when fires burn, pigs die. <laughs> that for some reason, pork products play a big part in, in fires. Um, but when they're actively engaged in a fire, a wildland firefighter can consume 7,000 calories a day. Wow. You know, even for, even for the best backpackers among us, that's, that's a, a major calorie count. Yeah, that, that's that. It really is. Um, okay, well, the final question. Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about the, pol- the Cold Springs fire, and uh, just kind of bring uh, bring people in there and, and tell them why they're going to need to read this book. So the Cold Springs fire was a fire that um, I was able to witness during the time that I spent with the crew, and that was um, during the summer of um, 2016, and in the days it, it lasted about a week including the um, cleanup um, or mop-up stage as they call it in firefighting that I realized in looking over my notes from that time that a lot of the things that I had learned up into that point up to that point and had only kind of known theoretically in some cases I saw playing out um, on a day-to-day basis from the, you know, what first happens when a, a fire sparks to the calling for resources to the, um, you know, deciding a, a fire needs more, more um, manpower and how that gets escalated through the system. And so I'd been to the local dispatchers and the regional dispatchers before that. And so I knew when it was happening, kind of who they were talking to and where those resources might be coming from. So it was really... Um, it was a way that I wanted to help readers incorporate all of the things that we learned from the beginning of the book into one particular fire and see how that actually all applies, you know, in what, again, was a major fire. Thankfully, nobody was injured or killed, it burned uh, eight houses um, could have been many, many more. Could have definitely been one of those fires that um, that could. Um, but even with a fire like that, that was relatively um, moderate in some cases, um, all of these pieces come into play, and all of that, all of what they learn, and all of what I learn just from day to day is churning. You know, in the same way they are turning over the the dirt. You know, endlessly trying to put out the fire. So I wanted to to kind of drive home all the things we learned in the beginning of the book with that one fire. And I and I think I hope that that um, is what happens. Hopefully that was your your takeaway from it. Oh, yeah. It, it just ties everything together. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think people just need to get the book and read it because I mean, this is something I've been very curious about. And I've, I've read a couple of pieces uh kind of covering certain parts of wild and fire and this really is the book for me that tied it all together so um i just wanted to say that and then you know we also uh you had sent me a couple of uh links to some of nasa 
So we got uh, September 6, 2017. Uh, you sent me this aerial photo from NASA, and I'll put a, sh- a link in the show notes there. And it really, I mean, it, I, I was in the middle of that, as a lot of people were. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and w- w- is this the type of thing you use to study for the book, or is this just something you're, uh, you're excited about personally? Oh, I, it's both. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big geek when it comes to stuff like that. Yeah. But I actually think when you – one big thing that I wanted to do with the book is we kind of get the same messages season after season in the mainstream media. You know, some, some people do a really good good job, but time is limited for daily journalists in particular. And we kind of get the same messages about fire every year. And we kind of see the same characters in the same ways. And what I wanted to do was it, it give people a closer look. So I feel like I start out, you know, from that kind of NASA um, look at, you know, what a fire looks like for a bird. And then we get right down to, you know, the granular things that, that make up any, any fire, any response to a fire. So... Yeah, I hope people will take a look at that. You know, your your summer last year was, I'm sure I don't need to remind you, you know, yeah. hot and dry, record-breaking, months without rain. Instead of rain falling, you had ash falling, you know, and that, even if you're not in imminent danger from a, a fire, which I hope, you know, nobody will be, we still were not able to escape the effects of it. You know, there are smoke effects, there are um, parts of, parks and national forests that are closed, trail closures. And it's, it's important that we don't just, you know, think about it during that season and during that time as just an irritation or something to live through. But hopefully people will start thinking about it as, you know, this is, this is the reason we need to, to talk more about changing the way that we live with fire and the way that we, we manage fire. Because we may have um, banner years or record-breaking years, and then, you know, who knows? Well, at least the projections are that the um, Northwest will have, you know, another intense um, season of fire. But even if it doesn't, you know, we can't can't become complacent, um, which I'm definitely guilty of, particularly in the (laughs) off-season. You know, the snow falls and we we forget or we want to forget and then it, it cycles back around again. So I hope we can kind of seize those moments as time to say, okay, this is, this is the time to have a dialogue about, you know, more prescribed burns and about, you know, targeted um, fuels treatment areas and about, you know, cleaning out your gutters in the wildland urban interface and about, about all of those things, because it's not, it's not going away. We're not, we're not um, on a reverse course at all, and we, we have to face that fact. Absolutely. And, uh, Heather, where could people get the book and uh, maybe give out, like, websites or, or anything like that? Yeah, so people can find it uh, on the Mountaineers um, Books website, um, which is who the publisher is. They can find it um, at Indie, Indie Books, Indie Bound, I think is the, the name of the website. Um, sold at, at lots of individual bookstores. If if you don't find it there, please request it. Um, and also Amazon, of course, if that's easiest for people. 
So however, however they get it, I hope people dig in and really appreciate the, the moment in time we're at. And it's not a, a doom and gloom one for me, you know, as much as I talk about the realities in the book, I'm, I'm kind of cautiously optimistic that, that we can take the reins of this and, and do something different going forward. I didn't realize that you were the author of The Prophets and Moguls as well. Oh, yeah. That's the um, book that I did for the um, Centennial of the Park Service. That's um, Prophets and Moguls, Rangers and Rogue, Bison and Bears, very long title, but 100 years of the National Park Service. And what that is is lots of anecdotes about you know the beginning of our national parks, but it's really an environmental history of the U.S. And again, kind of like the wildfire book, you know, we look at challenges to, to that system and we look at who is doing the good work, um, with the help of all of us to get where we need to be in, in preserving wildlands, which are invaluable. And we, we have to do what we can, as you well, as you well know, to safeguard that. It sounds really interesting. And, um, hopefully we can chat about that in the future. Oh, that would be exciting. Thank you. That'd be great. Right on. Well, Heather, thanks so much for coming on the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Yeah, thanks to everybody for listening. I appreciate it. All right, that's the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to join the Patreon page. Find me at patreon.com slash Cascade Hiker Podcast. Also, hit me up uh, with an email, rudy at cascadehikerpodcast.com. Find me on Facebook. My Facebook page is Cascade Hiker Podcast. Twitter, find me at in underscore Cascade Hiking. And I'm Cascade Hiker Podcast on Instagram. Thanks, Whiskey Fever, for letting me use this track here, Tall Grass, off their album, Gonna Wake Up This Whole Town. Go find them at ReverbNation.com slash Whiskey Fever. Hey, see you next week. You were sweet like honey on a heartbeat. You were fine like wine and sunshine. I could feel you coming on strong. Could never be wrong. Could never be wrong. See her laying down in the tall grass. Playing mandolin in a white dress. I come running when I hear that song. It could never be wrong. It could never be wrong. Where you wanna run, baby, I'll run too. I would leave this world for a beautiful girl if I could.